0: When you're a kid, when you're a kid and grandma and grandpa give you $0.25, a $0.50 piece, that dates me right there, $2, $5. When you're a kid and you have your own money for the very first time, come on now, that's magic. That is transformational. That is, you don't have to ask mom and dad, I want to get it. You've got it in your own pocket. It's burning a hole in your pocket. It wants to come out and help you. Your money. I used to bicycle all over Hartford City. My mom, where are you? I saw you today. You never knew where I was. When I had money, I would go down to downtown Hartford City to Val's department store. It was like a five and dime. And I would buy whatever I could with the money that I had in my pocket. And I would buy candy if I needed caps for the cap gun, whatever I needed, I would buy. And I could do it, and I and she didn't have to know because it was my money. And I could do what I wanted to, and it was exciting. Oh, I loved it. And so when I got old enough to work, I worked. I worked all summer long. During the school year, I worked like two jobs. I worked really hard, and which is why when I went to college and I showed up in August and September and I had to write that check, and literally I emptied out my bank account, it hurt to see all that money go, goodbye, Max, goodbye, my money. I mean, it just, it hurt, okay? It, but I would get more during the school year. I think 25 years later, that's why I still love Wheaton College, because I had to work so hard, and I had to write those checks, and it hurt so bad, It they ripped my heart out, and they still have some of my heart there in Wheaton, Illinois, those thieves. But I'm telling you, having your own money... Rocks, having your own money rocks it 's awesome for my young adult life i was I, I avoided debt for most of my young adult life i was I lived within my means most of my young adult life, and uh, I was considered what you would call responsible. I was one of those people as a young adult I was responsible okay but I never gave back money to God. I just never did that. That was never part of my thing. And so uh, I actually went back. Remember those checks I showed you a few weeks ago from the first years of our marriage? I actually went back through those checks to see what I had written like to God. I found one check for $15. First Baptist Church of Wheaton, Illinois. You know what I think it was? They had these church directory photos taken, and I think we ordered an 8x10. I think that's what it was. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it wasn't for a T-shirt or anything like that. Uh, But that's where that one check went, okay? And so that's just how I rolled with money. I mean, that's that's how I rolled Um, until it was my misfortune, our misfortune, to encounter a preacher who preached on Malachi 3 and storehouses and tithing, and he went on and on about it. And I remember sitting in the back row with Jenny. Uh, tithing, by the way, is a Christian code word. If you're new to Christianity, let me explain what it, what it means. If, if you're around Baptists, Baptists love to use Christian code words. One, a Christian code word among Baptists, for example, is fellowship. So, Let's say let's say your Baptist friend says you know we just had a great time of fellowship with Doug and Christy last Thursday. What they mean is that they hung out with Doug and Christy. They got together with Doug and Christy, but they use this Christian code word, you know, we just had a great time of fellowship. And they kind of say it like that. You know, you can also tell Baptists because when they come to church, they have these large leather-bound Bibles under their arm that weigh a lot. They kind of walk lopsided, okay? But that's just, a, it's a Christian code word. So tithing is another Christian code word. It just means a tenth or ten percent. It's kind of like a commission or a tax depending upon how you look at it. But it's just a percentage, ten percent, okay? So this preacher went on and on about Malachi 3, went on and on about You know, tithing, tithing, storehouses. And I would shoot Jenny these looks of, amateur. Because I had a degree from Wheaton by that point. I was working on my second graduate degree. You know, amateur. I remember leaning over and writing in her bulletin back when churches had those. Remember bulletins? Memories. Okay? I remember writing WRONG in all capital letters with three exclamation points. She's shaking her head. Yes, you did. Yep, you didn't know I was a little bit of a smart aleck back then, did you? I was a little cocky. Well, that cockiness extended because when the preacher was finished, I was furious. I couldn't believe a man of God would stand up and lie to a congregation like that. So graceless, so not even scriptural. And so Monday morning, I called the church office and I made an appointment with that pastor. I did. I've now preached only six years, because before this, I was just an executive pastor. You only break those out in case of an emergency. But I've logged maybe 300 sermons so far. In all that time, I've maybe had one or two people want to talk to me about anything I've said on a Sunday, okay? So i got to give the me, the young Max, a lot of credit for having cojones to go and call the pastor and to sit him down and explain how things really are. And I... (laughs) I did. I walked into his office, sat down. I had my arguments down. I had gone through the scriptures and I laid out for him. Did you know, oh, pastor, that grace is so cheap it's free? Come on, you can't earn anything with God. You can't earn his favor. You can't garner his blessing just by giving something back. He gave it all on the cross. And I went through and I talked about, you know, that message was graceless. And besides that, it was based in Malachi, which was the Old Testament. We now have a New Testament. Why would you be in the Old Testament? We don't even slit the throats of goats. Come on. And, uh, you know, I've never I've read the Gospels. I never heard Jesus mention tithe. Did you? And I laid forth these arguments and he just smiled. And he had his arms crossed and he let me go through all my arguments and he didn't even argue with me. And I was thinking, this is going really well. (laughs) And when it it was when I was all done and he could see that I had winded out, he just leaned back in his chair and he said, Max, do you really think all that money you have is yours? And I thought, crap, he's got me. And I said, "Well, okay, technically, no. Jenny makes about 85% of it, so technically, yeah. technically, only 15% of it's mine. But we're, you know, we're married, and it's share and share alike, and we file jointly." Yeah. And he goes, "No, no, 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 no. If he wants your money, he'll just take it, right? He's God." And I thought about that for a moment. Well, that's scary. And then. <laughs> And so he went on and he explained how tithing was just an issue of faithfulness. Tithing was an issue of putting God first. Tithing was an issue of learning to trust God. And then he challenged me. He says, why don't you try it for 90 days? Clearly, you're right. He patronized me. Clearly, you're right about all that stuff in the scripture. But why don't you just try it for 90 days? (sighs) Why don't you pray about And I'm not going to pray about that. This is uh, fine. So I went home and I talked to Jenny and we talked about it. And so we did it. We tried it for 90 days. Four things happened. One, it became a habit. When we were done, we just never stopped. And he actually made the promise in the middle of it. He says, look, if it, after the 90 days, if this isn't working for you anymore, or you feel like you can't count on God, or you feel like it's just stupid, just stop. It's no big deal. Who cares, right? I mean, you're right about all the stuff that you say. Just try it. <sighs> you know, okay. So... We did it for 90 days, and we've, you know, we just kept on going past it. The other thing was we found that we didn't miss the money. Third, we had money at the end of the month, whereas before we had a lot of month and no money. And then fourth, we discovered that we could actually count on God to meet our needs. So today, I want to put a stake in the ground for you, and I want to share an idea. And that is God owns all the boats. He owns all the boats. Psalm 24 puts it this way, and this is all I'll be in the Old Testament. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. Giving back to God actually unleashes a motor in your little financial boat. It's like the motor gets turned on. And I'm telling you, as someone who paddles, a boat with a motor can go farther, faster than I can ever go with just a set of paddles. Giving back to God unleashes a motor. It will take you places in life. Now, there's part of you that might want to go, oh, come, Max, you're going to talk about giving today. Yes, and you may have strong feelings, but set them aside for a moment and take this little tour with me. And at the end, you can make up your own mind. Uh, but I'm not going to be in the Old Testament for fear there is a young Max in the congregation today <laughs> who will want to make an appointment with me and sit me down and explain how this is, not the Old Testament, nope. I'm not going to go down that road, not going to give a young Max an opportunity. So today I'm going straight to the big cheese. I'm going straight to the top. We're just going to look at what Jesus said, right? Because he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's like the man who made the the salvation and everything happen. The son of God, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So we'll just go to Jesus. And because we say it generations all the time. Jesus is the best, most complete picture of God. If you want to know what God thinks about something, look at Jesus. You want to know what God would do in a situation? Look at what Jesus did. So we're, we'll look at Jesus. I learned something. Did you know that Jesus said more about money and possessions than salvation, heaven, and hell combined? What? I thought it was all about salvation. He said more about money and possessions than salvation, heaven, and hell combined. Um, in fact, 17 of the 38 parables are about money and possessions, 17 of the 38 that we have recorded in the gospels, money and possessions are mentioned 2,100. And what is it? 72 times in the Bible, three times more than love. But God is love. I know. And he talks about money more, seven times more than prayer. Oh, thank goodness. You know, that prayer thing wasn't really working for me eight times more than belief eight times more than belief. So apparently there's something really spiritual about money and possessions. So let's wade into it. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter six, Matthew chapter six. That's where we're going to be today. Matthew chapter six is part of an important message, uh, an important sermon that Jesus gave. Today we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And scholars, historians, biblical scholars all point to that sermon and they say that's the most important sermon that Jesus ever gave. So let's look at what he says about money and possessions in the most important sermon that he ever gave. And that's Matthew chapter six. And we're going to start in verse 19. In my Bibles, it's headlined by the phrase teaching about money and possessions. Okay. So Matthew 6, 19, here we go. And I'll throw it up on the screen for you. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Everyone has treasure. We all have treasure of some kind. And treasure is simply something that we value or someone that we value. Treasure is stuff that we keep, that we protect, that we have secure. Now, since there were no banks in 30 AD and there was no FDIC and no Ben Bernanke, you were really on your own. So you know what most people did? They'd bury it in a field. (gasps) I know, the whole parable about finding a treasure in a field, you could actually do that because that's what people did with their treasure. They buried it in a field. Sometimes they would hide it in the mud walls of their homes. They just mud it up and it's in there. Oh, yeah, it's in the kid's bedroom wall, you know, three three, kind of jigs over to the left and down a notch. Boom, there it is. Well, if it's buried in a field or if it's in a wall, it's really easy for moths, rust uh, moths were the common destroyer of the ancient world. Rust doesn't mean rust is in metal. Rust really means a general term for consumption. So the way that word is used in this passage in the Greek, the way it would have been understood is just something that gets eaten up. It's a eating up kind of a condition. And then thieves, we all know what those do. All right. So that's verse 19. Let's look at verse 20. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So here's the good news. Jesus actually commands us to store up treasure. Score! The thing is, he's wanting us to store up treasure for our future where we're going to be with him rather than storing it up someplace that we won't get to take it with us. In other words, if if Jesus is saying anything, the point he's making is stop storing up treasure in the wrong places and start storing it up in the right places. Storing up treasure on earth isn't wrong. It's just a poor investment. And that's kind of what he's saying. John Wesley understood this. John Wesley said this, I value all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. He would have said it with an English accent. I value all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. And then Jim Elliot said this, and we have it plastered all over a giant wall at Wheaton College. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So... Uh, Store your treasures on uh, in heaven where Moses, right, right? verse 21, where your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be, so treasure and hearts are linked. Verse 22, your eye is a lamp that provides light for the body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness will be. Two eyes when your eye and my eye is focused on what the heart values, it becomes a conduit that allows that to shape the heart. Okay, so when our single eye is focused on God, for example, our heart gets transformed and changed to what the focus of our eye is on. If our eye is focused on something bad, right, it corrupts the heart. It helps the heart does not work uh, in a good way. So the ancients who would have heard this, would have understood a kind of play on words that Jesus was making. There's this good eye, bad eye thing. And a good eye, people who had good eyes were generous people. You know, um, it would be like a code word. Um, Instead of saying somebody was generous, you would simply say, oh, that Dawn, she's got a good eye. And everybody would know, oh, okay, wow, what a neat person she is. Or, you know, that Luke, he's got a bad eye. And you would know, Luke's stingy as all get out, you know, right? And so that's kind of the play on words. Our American approach to money, the quest for the good life, the whole trying to get ahead, I think has blinded us a little bit to some of the values that we have about possessions that the rest of the world sees. The rest of the world looks at America and they go, you guys have so much and we spend so much of it right on ourselves. I pulled some statistics. Some of you go, really? Yes, because I'm a data geek, right? Of Americans who actually go to church, which is today about 20% of the population. So today or this weekend, 20% of Americans will darken the door of a church somewhere. All right. Of that amount, only one out of three of them will give anything back to God in the course of a year. So if you do the math, that 6% of Americans will give something back. Of the six Americans, 6% six of Americans who give something back, only 3% of those will give more than 10%. I know some of you are like, no way. I know. that's. And so, again, the rest of the world looks in and they go, really? Okay. Jesus kind of poses the same thing in the next verse. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Wouldn't you put another word there? I mean, like, wouldn't you think the natural flow of that would be like, you cannot serve both God and Satan? I mean, wouldn't you think that, you know, you know just saying the opposite of God, if you're trying to, you cannot serve both God and hate. Or you, you know, and he puts money? Really? You cannot serve both God and money? It's the weird thing. And Matthew uses this word that means money and possessions. I can remember some God conversations that I had with my Grandpa John in 1986. I was working at his company in the summer and uh, to make what at the time I thought was my money that I was going to hand over to Wheaton College, but I was working in the shipping department of his company. And at the time, Grandpa John was actually going to a large charismatic church in Vegas once every three or four weeks, it totally freaked me out because I always considered him the big, bad John, the the self-made, you know, business successful businessman. And and, and Grandpa John had all these great sayings. If you don't work. You don't eat. He understood grace. OK, <laughs> so he was going to this large charismatic church once every three or four weeks. And so we had these weird God conversations that summer and. I remember spelling out the gospel for him one one night, and he goes, I, I understand that. I get that. I understand grace. And I'm thinking, really? I mean, yeah, <laughs> okay, so I get that. And you know what he said to me? I'm afraid that God is going to ask me for my money. <clears throat> and I got to tell you, your grandmother will have no part of that. <laughs> my mom's going, yeah, isn't that the truth? Okay. <laughs> So your grandmother will have no part of that. Now, at the time, what I said to him was, no, don't worry about that. God's not going to ask for your money. It's just a heart thing. Because that's what I understood at the time. Today, I would answer him a little bit differently because of what I understand about God. How can you trust God with salvation, but not trust him with what's in your bank account? I mean, isn't that kind of silly? How can you say you love God with your whole heart and yet, hold on tightly to what's in chase. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It's why Martin Luther often spoke of three conversions. He spoke of the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. He did, Martin Luther, the swearing guy. Every time you read anything he wrote, he's swearing in it. And he's calling, you know, condemning people to hell left and right. I mean, you ought to read Martin Luther sometime. I think it's all the beer he drank drank, but he he totally got grace and God in a way that people had missed for like several hundred years. But conversion of heart, conversion of mind, conversion of purse. I think most Americans think the first two is good enough, but with Luther, it was all three. So in, in light of this passage from Matthew, in light of what Jesus has to say about hearts and money being linked, let me ask some questions. If God were more involved in your finances, do you think you would feel more secure? or less secure? If God were more involved in your finances, would you feel more secure or less secure? Does it make sense to trust God with your salvation, but not your finances? Isn't that kind of irrational? I mean, if you think about it, I want to be with you forever, but you know, can we talk about the stuff at Chase Manhattan later? And now the million dollar question, is your life, is my life money-centered or God-centered? And if you were to give an answer, if your checkbook or bank account were to come in and testify, would your checkbook or bank account go, yep, what they said, right on the money? And and allow me to flip that for just a minute, because flipping it and looking at it a different way makes total sense to me. Some of you will freak out initially, but don't worry, we're never going to do this, All right? What if Generations Community Church had a list posted on the door every Sunday That showed who gave what the previous week and the year to date totals. Now, I know that would like freak all of us out initially, but what if every church in America did that? And they did it every Sunday. What would you and I do? You know what you and I would do? We'd look at the list, and what would we do? We would judge people, wouldn't we? We would go, He's a surgeon. What? He's a surgeon, a bone surgeon. Okay, or they've got two jobs. They're well into six figures because she's a lawyer and not just kind of an injury lawyer, but she's on the back of my phone book. Okay, you and I would make conclusions. We would make judgments based on a number next to their name. And we would do that because we're kind of sinful and forgetting the whether or not it's right or wrong to judge. But we would make a conclusion or an assessment about their heart based on a number. I think if we would do that, sinful as we are, there's got to be something to what Jesus is saying in this passage about hearts and money being linked. All right, so let me give some practical advice. All right, so if you've never tried this, allow me to be that preacher to you for today, even though we're not in my office. If you've never given back to God, just start start i recommend starting with 10% for several reasons one it's really easy math if your paycheck was $1250 what's 10% of that 125 if your paycheck was $350 what's 10% of that 35 10%s really easy math it's just really easy another reason is that it's a 4000 year old ritual. It predates Jesus. It predates Moses and the law. It just goes way back. All right. And don't worry about the whole net and gross thing, because some of you are like, well, you know, my paycheck's only this much, but, you know, like gross is this much more. And I really only get half of what I make. And, you know, I'm worried the government's even going to take more than that. And okay, don't sweat the whole gross or net thing. Jenny and I started with our net. And then a year or so later, we moved on to gross. But just start somewhere and start with 10 percent. And the second thing I'd recommend is write that check or make that online payment first rather than last because of something Mike Lesage says all the time. He says, he'll say this, when I give off the top, there's always money left at the end of the month. But if I give off the bottom, I never seem to get there. I never reach that point where I have enough to write that check. He said, it's weird. I don't understand the math. It's just how it's worked for me. All right, so why tithe or why give? Well, let me give some practical reasons. One, it means that money problems, instead of being your problem, become God's problems. Isn't that an improvement? Come on, money. When you're giving back to God regularly, the money problems you encounter become God problems. I know a guy named Rick. He was one of my heroes early on in life. Rick is a self-employed contractor, and he'd have to drive to job sites. Rick always drove an ancient of days minivan that I, I, you'd look at it and you go, "That thing is street legal." Is this door going to stay closed? <gasps> you know, those kind of things. But any time that he had a big repair on that thing, a $600 repair, $800 repair, uh, $1,200 repair, you know, he would pray about it. And I remember being with him sometimes where he actually prayed about his car. And so I'm going to channel Rick for a moment if I can. I'm going to share with you how he prayed about the van when the van would break down. Hey, God your van's broke. <laughs> Honest to God, that's what he would pray. God, your van's broke. I really need to get around to these job sites. And so I i don't know if you want to fix your van. You know, if you want to give me a new van, hey, i am I'm okay with that. But if you just want to fix the van you got, I'll drive it around. But I just need to get around places. So God, your van's broke and I kind of need you to do something about that. Amen. And sure enough, every time somehow the money would come in and he'd fix that van. But in his mind, it was God's van. You know, I just need to get around God. You might want to. I mean, he got it. He got the whole God owns all the boats thing. So uh, money problems become God problems. Another reason is that When you and I get to the other side and we see Jesus face-to-face, I don't think we'll regret anything that we gave away in this life. There's a businessman uh, from Michigan whose first name is Claude, and he's developed what he calls the 10-second rule. Uh, For him... What it means is this, anytime he feels the the nudging of the spirit, the the prompting of the spirit on the inside for him to do something or talk to someone, he just does it before 10 seconds elapses because he knows that after 10 seconds, he'll talk himself out of it and he'll rationalize and he'll come up with all these reasons why he should ignore that feeling that he has. Okay. So for him, he calls it his 10 second rule. Okay. So he's in Detroit and he passes this homeless guy and boom, the nudge comes. Take, take this guy out to lunch. You know, feed him lunch. <sighs> so he does it, gets the guy to a restaurant. They're sitting down, they're eating. And um, the homeless guy says to him, what's a guy like you want to have lunch with a guy like me for? I mean, what, why do you want to have a lunch with a guy like me? I don't, I don't get this. Because he's, he's, uh, Claude's a very successful businessman. He's a business coach for, like, multi-million dollar corporations. So, I mean, he's big cheese, right? He's got lots of cash. And so he says to the guy, Claude says to the guy, well, you know, in honesty, I really didn't want to. What? Yeah, no, I really didn't want to. It's just this, I have this thing, it's called the 10-second rule, and I just felt God prompting me to, you know, to take you out to lunch, And so, you know, it's not because I wanted to, it's just God kind of told me, and I I just have this practice of obeying whatever God says. And the guy reveals to him, I haven't eaten in, in like two or three days, and I told God this morning I didn't know how much longer I could go and that he needed to give me some food today. Coincidence? No. You know what Claude told him? The guy wanted to thank him. He's like, thank you. Thank you for listening to God. Thank you for taking me to lunch. Claude said, don't thank me. It's not even my money. You want to thank somebody, thank God. I didn't want to do this. I just, like I said, I have a practice. I just obey whatever he tells me to do. And so, boom, see, Claude gets it. When Claude gets to the other side, he's not going to miss that, you know, $25, so to speak. All right. When you and I see Jesus face to face, I really don't think we will be thinking in our hearts or our minds, man, God was so stingy when I was on earth. I think if anything, we'll think The other end of the continuum will think, man, why did I spend so much on me? That's what we'll think when we see God face to face. So tithing and giving, I really believe, unlocks the motor in your boat. And when you unleash the motor in your boat, you can go places. It will take you far in life because here's what I know. God can do more with 90% than you can with 100% or 106%. God can do more with 80% than you can with 100% or 106%. God can do more with 70%, right, than you and I can with 100% or 106%. Ladies and gentlemen, unleash your motor. You won't regret it.